We pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, Luther begins his large catechism, of course, with the first commandment. He starts by asking, what does to have a God mean? Or what is God? Answer, a God is the term for that to which we are to look for all good and in which we are to find refuge in all need. Therefore, to have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe in that one with your whole heart. As we consider the second half of Psalm 33 this morning, I'd like to focus on that little word, trust. To have a God is nothing else than to trust in that one. The psalmist mentions this explicitly as the attitude, the behavior of the righteous, the upright in verse 21. In him, that is in Yahweh, our hearts are glad. For in his holy name, we trust. Implicitly, however, In verses 16 and 17, trust is the misplaced attitude of the king. He trusts in his great army. The strong man trusts in his great strength and false is the hope of all who trust in the hooves of a war horse. Notice the active sense of that word, of these trusts. The king marches out his army, rank upon rank, behind the thundering hooves of his war horses. These mighty men of valor wield their weapons in unflagging strength. Trust will conquer. In contrast to this active trust, we sense the passive trust of the upright. It is not their arms and legs, muscle and sinew that wield trust. Rather, it is the heart, our heart, first person plural, that trusts. We hear this in another key term in verse 20. Our soul waits For Yahweh, waiting in its near synonym to hope, which appears in verses 18 and 22, characterize the righteous and their relationship to God. So this morning, I'd like to contrast these two words, to trust and to wait, as they appear in the psalm, as they appear in life, both biblical and contemporary. Trust and hope are reflected in the attitudes and actions of men and women, but they are known only imperfectly by others. We have to read between the lines sometimes. By contrast, the Psalms makes it abundantly clear that God knows precisely. Because Yahweh looks down from heaven and sees all the children of Adam, verse 13. From where he sits, he gazes upon, he considers all the inhabitants of the earth, verse 14. After all, he is the one who formed their hearts, and he considers all their deeds. Do they wait for him, or do they trust in other gods. Verse 16. There is not to the king one who saves in his great army. That the world trusts in armies can be observed by a quick perusal of global headlines and hotspots. The North Koreans recently launched two new medium-range tactical missiles, saber-rattling on a perennially troubled peninsula. Those were simple tests of military hardware, brinkmanship, as the media characterized it. In the Middle East, though, drones have been shot down and ships attacked and others seized. What is particularly unsettling in both situations is the nuclear shadow cast by the aspirations and advances in both regions. Reminded of a scene from Hunt for Red October when Commander Bart Mancuso quips, the hard part about playing chicken is knowing when to blink as two submarines armed with enough firepower to obliterate the eastern seaboard go head-to-head. 
In the days of Saul, Israel's first king, the Philistines trusted in their army, especially in their great warrior, Goliath. The word remains synonymous for anything that is oversized, overpowering. He stood six cubits in a span. In modern terms, that's about a foot taller than Joseph Nerkeith, the blazer's center. But his taunts were even greater as he viewed a little shepherd boy, son of Jesse. Am I a dog? Did you come after me with sticks? Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and your, to the beasts of the field. And his bluster was no match for a river stone slung by David and guided by Yahweh. The army of the Philistines fled before the Israelites who chased them as far as the gates of Gath and Ekron. Christians, those made righteous by the blood of Christ, wait on a God who delivers. Verse 19. He snatches their soul, their life from death. We recall the days of Nebuchadnezzar and the bold testimony of three young men from Judah. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king, the one who would die for their salvation in his incarnation, walked with them in the fiery furnace. And, quote, the hair of their heads was not singed, their cloak was not harmed, and no smell of fire came upon them. Close quote. We think of Peter in Acts 12, when the angel walks him out of prison, even though he was bound with two chains between two centuries with guards at the door. Or Paul and Silas at Philippi waited on God, singing in their chains, and he delivered them. Our epistle reading this morning comes from the 11th chapter of Hebrews, which most English Bibles subtitled, The Heroes of Faith. We heard a litany of those who waited on a God who delivers. Enoch, who is waiting on the Lord, pleased the Lord so that he did not see death. Noah and his family, who waited in the days before the flood, enduring the taunts of the wicked, and so became an heir of righteousness. Abraham and Sarah, who waited well into the years in which hope dies. Yet he saw God's promise realized when Sarah was given the power to conceive. These all died in their faith, the writer of the Hebrews declares, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and have acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They waited on a God who delivers. For New Testament readers, verse 19 is clearly a messianic text. That he may deliver their, no, that he may deliver his soul from death. God sent his son, and the son allowed wicked men, you and me, to nail him to a Roman gibbet. He died and was buried, but no longer. The father delivered him from death, as Paul writes, he will never die again, for death no longer has dominion over him. You and I will die if Christ doesn't come first, but it is not a tragic end. Revelation chapter 20, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection were baptized into Christ's death. Over such the second death, eternal damnation has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ. Christians wait on a God who rescues. In contrast to the wicked, verse 16, the strong man is not delivered by his great strength. The world trusts in self, self-fulfillment, self-realization. Be all that you can be is the mantra of our age. 
But sometimes that's just not quite enough. I'm sure our chronologically blessed members will remember Jimmy Stewart in the classic movie Shenandoah as he played a Virginia farmer trying to keep his family out of the Civil War. Early in the movie, the family gathers around the table for dinner with one empty place where his wife was recently dead. He begins to pray. Lord, we cleared this land. We plowed it, sowed it, and harvested it. We cooked the harvest. We wouldn't be here, we wouldn't be eaten if we hadn't done it all ourselves. We worked dog-boned hard for every crumb and morsel. But we thank you just the same, Lord, for the food we are about to eat. Amen. Well, through the course of the movie, one tragedy after another strikes. His youngest son is mistaken as a soldier and captured. Another son and his wife are murdered by marauders. And a third son is mistaken and shot by an overzealous sentry. When we next see Stuart's character gathered around the table, there are four more empty places. And he begins the ritual prayer that apparently prayed every night, but this time his voice quivers and it breaks as the awful realization comes to him that he is not in control. He is not the master of his own destiny. Are you willing to trust yourself? Sometimes we are. Sometimes even in church, sometimes even in spiritual matters. The gospel, the gospel just seems too weak, too ephemeral. How can life, eternal salvation, be simply a gift? And if it is, why doesn't God give it to everyone? Don't we have to do something to qualify? The psalmist says no. Verse 20. Our soul, our souls, first person plural, wait for Yahweh. Our help and our shield is he. We hear examples of both this in the Elisha cycle. He waited on a God who helped him by, in the time of famine through miraculous means. First by the wing and the talons of a raven who delivered bread and meat morning and evening. And he drank the waters from the brook Kareth east of the Jordan, until it ran dry. Then God sent him to Zarephath, to a widow, and together with her son, the three of them waited on Yahweh, who helped them. Waiting on Yahweh, our God, is our shield, is not necessarily a sedentary activity. After Jezebel threatened Elijah's life, quote, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as one of these by the time tomorrow... After she threatened him like that, God became his shield by sustaining him as he ran all the way to Mount Horeb. Or more dramatically, when Ahaziah was king in Samaria and the king sent his captain of 50 with his 50 men, God was his shield sending fire and consuming them. And then another captain and his 50 as well. Christians wait on his steadfast love, verse 22. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as our hope is in you. The word here is chesed. Steadfast love, mercy, kindness are all in the semantics we feel. God's covenant faithfulness, his promise, the promise of a redeemer as ancient as the garden, a promise carried through Noah and reiterated to Abraham, a promise conferred to the line of Judah and incarnate by Mary promise fulfilled on the cross and declared from the open tomb the promise committed to you in the water and word of baptism. promise that declares you are mine. 
Verse 17. False is the horse for salvation. In its great power, it will not save. The war horse, in our translation, was a possession of powerful kings and nations in the historical context of the psalm. The ancient world and the modern world trust in things that can almost all be reduced to the least common denominator, the money. With retirement on the horizon, I am constantly inundated with websites and services asking the faded and unanswerable question, will you have enough? There are income calculators and projected rates of return to be weighed against the life expectancies and the whole host of mitigating factors from zip code to family history. But it's not just people in my age bracket. 2010 USA Today survey of college freshmen, 78.1% of those interviewed wanted to be, quote, well off financially. That was their goal in life. Compared to only 42.2% of college freshmen in 1969, that was my generation, the temptation to trust in money is endemic to our culture. For his first sermon in an elementary preaching class, Lawrence, an African student, chose a text describing the joys that we'll share when Christ returns and ushers us into the heavenly kingdom. I've been in the United States for several months now, he began. I've seen the great wealth that is here, the fine homes and cars and clothes. I've listened to many sermons in churches, too. But I've yet to hear one sermon about heaven. Because everyone has so much in this country, no one preaches about heaven. People here don't seem to need it. In my country, most people have very little, so we preach on heaven all the time. We know how much we need it. Lawrence's people know well our text, particularly the second half of verse 19, for he preserves them alive in famine. Christians wait on a God who provides. Our gospel lesson spoke of ravens that neither sow nor reap. It spoke of lilies that neither toil nor spin, yet are more gloriously arrayed than Solomon. And then the punchline, verse 30. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. We are his children by adoption, through baptism. Will our Father not care for his children? Gary Thomas writes, once while walking through a McDonald's restaurant, I saw eight 10-year-old girls celebrating a birthday. The warmth of sheer unadulterated happiness permeated the gathering. It was as if a light was turned on and I, I could see God's delight. God felt happy that these girls were happy. Their delight, their joy, even their giddiness gave God great pleasure. Ever thought about it? That you can give God great pleasure by enjoying yourself? If you're a parent, imagine Christmas morning as young kids tearing into their presents. Does anything make you happier? Don't moments like these break the dull routines of life and give us a glimpse of heaven? The fact that we are children of God and that Jesus urges us to become like children speaks of a certain demeanor, a certain delight, a certain trust in God's goodness and favor towards us. While God's servants are not merely his children, he also calls us to sacrificial and mature service. We never become less than his children. The world trusts in many things, according to the psalmist. It trusts in armies. It trusts in self. It trusts in money. Christians, on the other hand, wait on a God who delivers. We wait on a God who helps and protects. We wait on a God who provides. Why? 
Well, because the Lord watches over those whom he has chosen in his Son. Amen. Now may the peace which surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen.